Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we welcome back Jeffrey Gates. I interviewed Jeffrey back in 2017 about some of the notable experiences of his life, including his service with the International Voluntary Service in the war zone of Vietnam in 1971, and his service with the Peace Corps after his retirement from about 40 years as a doctor. A couple years ago, he learned he has a terminal cancer, so he wrote a memoir, Final Reflections not for profit, but for personal clarity and perspective, and in which he shows so much more of the deep currents of his life. Before we talk again to Jeffrey, I wanted to share with you a brief clip from our 2017 interview, preparing you for some of the deep thought and heartfelt reflection that is so very much a part of the way Jeffrey approaches his life and decisions a mode of being that is all the more essential if we are to have any hope of preventing civil war in the United States. I asked Jeffrey about his experience of working and living in a war zone in Vietnam and how it influenced him. Here's what he said back in 2017. My experience is like many people in the world. People in Rwanda, almost everyone has seen someone violently killed, so have I. People in Myanmar, the Rohingya, They have seen refugees who have been everything taken from them and flee in fear. I've seen that. So I speak from that experience, but I don't speak from the extreme experience of perhaps even my brother, who's the pilot with his wing shot off, going over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What I take from this experience is frequently those who have not seen war have the idea that if you get all the way down to the the well of their person, they're nice all the way to the core. If you think that, you can't understand those who have been through these experiences, which are all of these refugees, which are all of the soldiers, which are the very few people in my situation or Doctors Without Borders who are among them. And what I see is that there's an incredible anger that you carry forever, and you have to somehow resolve in yourself because we're not the dominant species on this planet because we're nice people. We're the dominant species because when we're pushed to the wall, we can kill. And it's an easy thing to say, oh yeah, well, every human has the capacity for anger, for the capacity for hatred, for the capacity to kill. But to know that that's true, that's an incredibly difficult experience. That's the type of thing that you see in the middle of the night. That was Jeffrey Gates speaking back when I interviewed him in 2017, but we've got him here today as well, and we also have production help from Andrew Jansen. Thanks to Andrew, and now we go to Duluth, Minnesota, via Zoom, to again visit with Jeffrey Gates. Jeffrey, so good to have you back for Spirit in Action. And it's good to be back, always with a little bit of trepidation about talking about Spirit in Action, but no, I appreciate the invitation. Well, it's one of the dangers of being a physics major. We're supposed to be nerds, right? I was a speech communications major as well as a physics computer science major. But you were not a speech communications major, were you? No, but 
I built a laser in, in high school, a ruby laser. And in the early 1960s, this is like 10 years after the discovery, it was a big deal. So I was really going into science. Then I realized there's so many other interests in life. So no, I did not do speech, but I sang in the choir and I played soccer, not very well, but I participated in that, took anthropology courses. And looking at life, it's worth doing all of that. And yeah, yeah, I got my physics major and that was okay, but I got a liberal in the broadest sense of the word education and it's done me well. You know, I finished reading a couple of weeks ago your book, Final Reflections. And this book made me both happy and sad. I mean, sad because I already knew you had the prostate cancer, which was advancing. It's going to be terminal. Life is terminal, so I'm not too surprised about things being terminal. But this led you to write this memoir. Could you say a little bit more about your motivations for writing this? In some ways, it started with my mother. She was in her 90s, and she was beginning to have some cognitive function, difficulty remembering, and basically facing death at that time, real slowly. I got a whole number of things that she had talked to us before, you know, the stories that, oh, you know, mom, you've told me that story a dozen different times. And I said, write it down. And then I put it in a, a book with illustrations from her youth, some of the old photos and an award she had won for singing and things like that. And it was so important to her because it was her life sort of weighed and come out in the balance basically good, despite all the challenges that she had faced. And that book was on her bedside when she died. It was that important to her that those are things that she wanted to cherish and bring back and say, life basically is good. So when I got the diagnosis of a cancer, which was unlikely to be cured, and I could slow it down, but unlikely to be cured, I thought, I ought to do the same thing. Because when I'm involved in things, I'm always thinking about how could I do things better? I'll think of last week and think, well, is there something that uh, I didn't do as well as I could have? What could I? And when you're so involved in things, you never look at your whole life and say, this was a life well lived. Not one without any regrets, but it basically was a life well lived. And that's sort of what I was trying to put in that book, not for a general audience, but just for those who knew me during part of it. Because now the only person who's known me since birth is my brother, who's three years older. Even my wife doesn't know a lot of things that occurred before I met her. Well, I hope we include in this interview, Jeff, some of the secrets that Debbie doesn't even know about. We could surprise her. <laughs> Again, it's called A Memoir, Final Reflections. Is this actually available for other people or not? I mean, you're not intending to market it. That's not the purpose of this thing. But is it available if other people are interested? Well, no, I just print off a few copies from the company that does this. And what they do is encourage everyone at a certain age to put down their stories and throw in a couple photographs. So if people said they're really interested, I'd probably send them a book. If a hundred people said they were interested, well, I'd probably have to get it published for real. Okay. Well, people should contact you. I'll have some information so they can contact you if they are interested in final reflections. But I'm hoping we're going to cover a significant portion of what's in the book today, the important stuff that 
leads to, I mean, the purpose of Northern Spirit Radio is to inspire and educate people to do healing work in the world. And you've been doing a lot of that for some decades now. So I would like to help inspire people to move in that direction, find the pieces that can help that happen. It took me a long time to realize this, but one of the things about helping others is if you've ever been hurt, Helping somebody else with their hurt heals your own. So one could say that, well, I was a physician at the Mayo Clinic after I retired. I went to the Peace Corps. I worked in Tanzania in a district hospital. There was a lot of, why did I do that? It's because if you can help people who are hurting, the hurt that you've experienced in the past, it's somehow relieved. It's somehow put in the context of, of everyone. So I would encourage people, if you if, if you feel hurt, help others. It makes 100% sense to me. One of the overview things that people need to have in their minds is Jeffrey Gates grew up in a military family. And while he was in college, he made a transition. You made a transition, Jeff, from being supportive of the war to being opposed to the war and to filing as a conscientious objector eventually. That's a major transition. I was thinking if you were part of the other mindset, I tend to find myself on the progressive liberal end of most things. So I think well of the people who come to understand the things the way that I do. On the other hand, there's some I think it's propaganda, or maybe it's a way of thinking, or maybe it's insight out there that you send kids off to college and it messes up their mind. They start becoming pacifists. Sorry. Do you think at all that by going to McAllister College that it in some way led you from the truth, closer to the truth? What do you think about that? And it's a talking point on one side of the scale. Do you have a different point of view? I have a different point of view. My brother and I had very similar values, integrity, defending people. You know, I would say relieving suffering. He would say defense because he's a, a Navy pilot like my father was. But we saw the world different, and it wasn't in classroom. Yeah, I read all sorts of things on all sorts of sides and things of this nature. But McAllister College in the 60s allowed me to get out and see the rest of the world. And I'm raised in a military family. Everyone I know in the neighborhood <laughs> thinks like I do. You know, in those years, everyone in my neighborhood is white and many are military. And if they're not, they're middle class. So in college, I took a summer and helped do the reading program on the Passamaquoddy Reservation up in Maine. And they invited me back in January when the college had a interim. And I set up a program in the inner uh, city for uh, a swimming program on Saturday morning. And neither I nor many of my friends got drunk on Friday. So we were actually up for a swimming program early in the morning. And they too gave me a different perspective. And then I went to Taiwan with Span, had studied Chinese. And for several weeks, I'm up in the mountains of Taiwan with these Chinese health workers, another way of looking at the world. So it changed my perspective on things. So I applied the same values that my brother had to a situation with a totally different worldview. And yet I still respect him and his values. And if I had not seen the world in the way that I had seen it, I would have done what he had done, which is I would have gone to Vietnam as 
uh, not as a pilot, I'm too nearsighted, but I would have gone. And in fact, I tried to drop out of college in my first year because I was afraid the war was going to be over. And even in my last year, I was looking for ways that I could go without carrying a weapon. But you did apply as a conscience subjector. You had several layers of support to your application for CO, including a letter from your brother, Christopher. And I was wondering if you would be able to read for our Spirit in Action listeners the letter as Christopher wrote to support you. It's really interesting because, again, you're on such different sides of it, and you're not mincing words, but there's still love in the difference. I have to give a little background to this letter. Both my father and mother were committed in World War II and made enormous sacrifices. So my father was able to get a full scholarship to the University of Kansas in Lawrence. And if he had done that, he would have worked in a war industry and not been involved in the fighting, probably. Instead, he applied to the Naval Academy and because he knew the war was coming. This is in 1939. During the war, his ship was almost sunk. Uh, he was in Korea. He lost two planes, crashed twice, et cetera, et cetera. He had a degree from Caltech in aeronautical engineering. He took on an experimental plane that killed people and it eventually killed him. My mother had the same commitment. She married a person who was leaving to the Pacific. She gave up a full music scholarship to go work in the munitions industry as a secretary. That was their commitment. That was the two parents who raised my brother and I. When my father was killed, I was eight, my brother was 11. But that's a bond which is incredibly hard to break. It's not just the bond of, oh, well, we went to the same church when we were kids. It was a bond that was hard to break, but it, it frayed it. So when the draft board was saying, no, 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 he's going to be pulled back and become a soldier, my brother wrote this letter basically to the draft board to say, Leave him alone. He has the same integrity that I do. He's able to take the same risks. You know, just leave him alone. He's my brother. So this is the letter. Dear sirs, from outward appearances, it would seem that Jeffrey Gates, my brother, and myself are entirely different. Yet it is my contention that we have only chosen different ways to serve our country and mankind. I have chosen to follow my father's career and after he was killed, my stepfather's career in naval aviation. I am presently flying attack aircraft from the USS Shangri-La Vietnam. I believe in my part in this conflict, and I am proud of my chosen profession. Conversely, though, I am no less proud of my brother. He has made his decision on the right of one man to kill another, yet he refuses to be denied the right to serve his country. He is presently in Vietnam as a teacher with his books and beliefs while I bring bullets and bombs. What good does it do to destroy the Viet Cong if no one risks his life to teach the Vietnamese how to use their freedom? I am not arguing that one of us is more important than the other. My plea is that both of us are necessary to the preservation of freedom in the world today. I know you will find my brother is dedicated to his purpose in life as I am to mine. Send him to prison because he carries a book in a comrade zone instead of a gun is no less a travesty of justice than sending me to prison because I refuse to face combat unarmed. Sirs, 
I do not ask for mercy or leniency for my brother. If he had wanted that treatment, he would have accepted an appointment to the Navy Supply Corps. I make the strange request that you find my brother completely dedicated to his beliefs and allow him to continue to risk his life as a teacher in Vietnam. Sincerely yours, Christopher G. Gates, Lieutenant U.S. Navy, Attack Squadron 172, FPO, New York, et cetera, et cetera. That is such a powerful letter. Do you feel like you and Christopher, you, you mentioned that the connections between you were frayed sometimes because of the differences, difference of opinion. Does that fraying persist till this day? There are things we don't talk about. We don't talk about our experience of the war. And in fact, in some ways, neither of us talks as deeply about our experience in the war with anyone except the people that we experienced it with. So until very late in his life, he's still alive, but he went to reunions of his squadron and other naval aviators who had been in exactly the same situation. And I went to all sorts of reunions to the group that I first went to Vietnam with, the International Voluntary Service. Except for that, now we share everything. I mean, when my mother had a long, slow glide to her death involving cognitive dysfunction and physical dysfunction, we both took care of her. We shared our feelings about that experience and, and long before that. He's lost friends because his brother is a Quaker pacifist who went fight. And I've lost friends because my brother was a naval pilot who bombed supplies coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That's not a war crime. I mean, one of those bicycles or trucks was carrying the mortar that blew the roof off of my house in Tainin. I had left the year before, so that wasn't one of the close calls. But what he did was war because he thought that war was justified. What I did was pacifism because I thought that war was not justified. We both had integrity. If for me right now in the United States, I hear talk about the perhaps a pending, a, a soon arriving civil war divisions between one side of the country thinks this way, another side of the country thinks that way. Some people say, make America great again. And the other people say, look at these suffering people who are harmed by our country. Let's do things differently. And the, those groups are not talking well together. <laughs> That's kind of an understatement. Part of my hope is that by some of the stories you can say, and you know, folks, Jeffrey Gates puts a lot of wonderful stories in his book, Final Reflections. You can't get it directly from me. You can't order it from Amazon. You'll have to come through the contact on nordenspiritradio.org to find out about this. But one of the stories that was kind of gut-wrenching to me was you took another peace worker with you to visit your family who are living on a military base. And that did not go well. There were many hearts that were wrenched by that. Could you share that story, Jeffrey? Yeah, I can. In fact, that's one of the most difficult stories in the sense of I don't really belong to either group. So, you know, I was raised in a military family. My college education was paid because technically from the VA, I was a war orphan up until age 21. But I'm not military. When I hear the Navy hymn, which was sung at my father's memorial service, I tear up. And no one else does in my Quaker meeting. When 
I say it's not as simple as one side's right, one side's wrong, you know, or give peace a chance. I, I've seen things that are more complicated. So I'm circling around to your question. My first Quaker meeting was in Tainan, Vietnam, where the American Friends Service Committee had a prosthetics hospital. And they, like me, had no guns. They had no way of protecting themselves. They were frequently in danger. One of the doctors, Marjorie Nelson, had been captured during uh, the Tet Offensive. Uh, she cared for <laughs> refugees and even soldiers and captured Americans there. And after several weeks, they decided she's not the person we want to keep. They, they sent her back. When I went to that meeting, I had that sense of calm that Quakers can sometimes do, that the spirit moves through us, even though there were helicopters overhead and trucks moving around. So that's, I think, really when I became a Quaker. But I never lost the love of my parents and my brother. So it wasn't that I could quickly cut that off. So one of my friends who had helped prepare an exhibit on the Vietnam. He'd been to prison. I'd been to Vietnam as a pacifist, and we did all sorts of things together. Wanted to see what a military base was like. So I took him to where my stepfather had command of a military weapons development base in the deserts of California, which was actually bigger than the state of Rhode Island. And it was so traumatic to him that it sort of severed our friendship. Not any violent sort of way. It's just sort of like, how could I actually be a Quaker, a pacifist, if I didn't sever relationships with these people? And it never occurred to me to sever relationships to these people. It just never occurred. And with the Quakers, when I came back from Vietnam in 72, I'd read everything I could about World War II, about the Japanese, about the Nazis, not the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese. They're entirely different culture now than they were in the 1930s and 40s. And I think I would have done what my father had done. I would have volunteered. As horrible as I saw war was. So I had gotten my CO, I had gotten my deferment, and I turned it back in, and that's a felony. And when Quakers said, oh, well, we're pacifists, you know, we love people, we can't think of hurting them. I said, I can't be that. I can't, not after seeing that. So I did not join the Quakers, though I went to meetings in all sorts of places, including England. And I didn't join them until I had the cancer 50 years later that way. And the clearness committee said, you can be a good Quaker without being absolutely sure what you would have done in a previous war. We do not have confessions of faith that kick people out, though sometimes we do. But the people I know don't. Right. And my brother the same way is that he doesn't have to be cure. He can go to reunions, and hopefully we're going to have another meeting in November when both his side of the family and my side of the family are at the Mayo Clinic. We can have reunions. We can be a part of each other without being pure. For me, I believe that one of the greatest callings we can have is to widen our circle of us. The us is who is us? Is it only the people who are white? Is it only people who grew up in Wisconsin as I did? Is it only the people who are Quaker? That circle of us needs to be widened. And when we allow people to be part of us, when we extend our love that far, there's possibilities for healing and of nurturing of the world that you don't get any other way. 
So it's who is us is the big question. And I challenge everyone, uh, liberal or conservative or middle of the line, to see who they include in their us or not, because I certainly know enough liberals who will point at some conservatives or military people or whatever and say they're not us. And I think that's a circle that needs to be widened. It seems to me like your life has been has forced you, Jeffrey, to have a bigger us. It's also a curiosity. I could have gotten other jobs other than going to the Passamaquoddy Reservation. I could have done other things on Saturday morning, but I realized that I didn't know how other people saw the world and I wanted to do that. In Tanzania, there was no Quaker meeting in Dar es Salaam. So if I was with uh, Lutherans, I would go to the Lutheran church. And if I was with Catholics, I would go to the Catholic church. And if I was with Muslims, I would go see you know, the hospital they have and, and not participate, but I would share with them. In one of the Lutheran services, or after one, they were in Kiswahili, and I was studying it, but in my 60s, I did not pick up language as well as I did in my 20s. So I could sing the hymns, but I couldn't understand what the sermon was. What I got is I told them that I'm a Quaker. Sometimes we meet in total silence, and what I can feel is that goodness in other people or the spirit moving among us or whatever, and I could hear that. I could feel that in those congregations. Not that I would agree with everything if I could understand what the minister was saying, but I could feel that basic goodness. And I need that. I need time alone for meditation. And I need time with people who are joyous and good, if not perfect. Folks, this is Jeffrey Gates we're speaking with. Jeffrey S. Gates is a fuller portion of his name. I'm talking with him now, although I talked to him, I think it was back in 2016 when I interviewed him first for Spirit in Action, and I urge you to come to NordenSpiritRadio.org and listen to that interview. There's a lot of things in that interview that you'll miss from this interview, and it'll help deepen your understanding. There's a lot more things, though, out on NordenSpiritRadio.org, including links to all of our guests from the past, comments. We'd love it if you would leave a comment on this program, on other programs, because it really does matter to me to hear your voices as well. So please do that. You can support us. You can find the stations across the U.S. where we're carried. There's some 35 to 45 stations across the country carrying Northern Spirit radio programs. So please do that and please support those stations. Again, Jeffrey Gates is who we're speaking with. Final Reflections is his memoir. And there was a, a little bit about that initial conversation we had, Jeffrey, that I wanted to come back to. I have rarely in my life been much of a journaler. But there were two different times in my life when I did write things down, and I'm thankful for them. One was I was taking an English course when I was in high school, and he wanted us to keep a journal. So I did that. And the other thing is right before I went to the Peace Corps to Africa, Frida, a dear friend of mine, gave me an empty journal book for me to write things down. And I filled it about halfway up while I was there. She wanted to capture all that. She wanted me to capture it. And I think journaling is such an important process for the soul, because when we put things down in words, it clarifies our own thinking. It connects us to them. Have you ever been a journaler, Jeffrey? I kept 
Not really a journal. I kept notes during both the time that I was in Vietnam, 70, 71 with IVS and 73 with uh, British and Australian Quakers. Otherwise, I've kept letters that I've written to people. So when you think about it, after the Gospels, everything's a letter. And when it became email, I've printed those out for fear that when I change my email address, they're all gone. And oftentimes those were well thought out. So there are little bits and pieces here of people who wrote me or I've written to, to them. And strangely, sometimes I would keep a copy of what I had written to somebody else. So the correspondence goes both ways. It's different to think about your whole life, though. So this cancer is not going to be curable, but I have a good quality of life now and probably a year or two, maybe, for that. When you look back over everything, it's different than when you're writing right now. Most of the letters that I wrote, most of the journals I wrote were, how can I solve this problem? Or how can I express gratitude for this event to somebody else who had made that possible for me? And looking back, you know you have regrets, but you have a chance to weigh that life is worthwhile. Life has interesting things, even if the events are not huge. Some of the things in the memoir, because some of this came from questions, was um, what skills are you most proud of? And I put down in Boy Scouts that it was learning to do flint and steel to make a fire out of the inner bark of a tree and, you know, my Boy Scout knife and a little rock that I carried with me, a piece of flint. And what were the joys? And I wrote down, you know, a kayaking trip that my son and I had taken. Those aren't things that are not going to be a New York Times bestseller. They're not extraordinary events. Some of the events are that I was in, you know, during the war and, and medical cases I was involved in as a physician. Those are dramatic. But life is so many other things. And that was the thing about putting together the book of my for my mother is nothing that she did was dramatic. Nothing she did was a bestseller. But what she did was so important for her life and the lives of the people around and the person I am today. <laughs> it makes an incredible difference. And what I think you're saying is uh, if listeners today to Spirit in Action, if they do that, they'll probably find important fruits in their life, in their way of being. I wanted to revisit a couple of pieces. Again, all of these things are touched on in the interview back some seven years ago and in Final Reflections, the memoir you've written. One of the things that hadn't quite clicked for me when I was doing the interview with you back in 2016 is that at the same time you were applying as a conscious subjector, you were actually serving the International Voluntary Service in Vietnam. A lot of people would think of it as like, oh, he's applying for a CO so he doesn't have to go to Vietnam. You are actually choosing to be there at the same time. And that is a very different frame of mind from most people. I mean, it wasn't unusual for people when I was growing up. I, I didn't turn 18 till 1972, which is the year they stopped drafting. 
so most of the people a year or two older than me were saying, do I go to Canada? What do I do to avoid going to Vietnam? You went there. And that difference in psychology seems major to me. Were you aware of it at the time, how different you were than so much of the zeitgeist of your generation? Yeah, that comes from the, I mean, my brother was going to be going to Vietnam when he finished all of his training in an A4 Skyhawk. My father had been killed in the military in a way that he could have gotten out of it. So if Vietnam was really important, I had to be there. Now, there were a lot of people I met in Vietnam and across a wide range of political spectrums who did not have that same background, who did not have that same compulsion, but people with Vietnam Christian Service, people with American Friends Service Committee, a number of people in IVS, the Barclay Vietnam Fund, the British and Australian Quakers. I mean, they all were there because it was important for people like us to be there, to lay the groundwork to heal the wounds before the wounds had even been made. And that happens all over the world now. I mean, the International Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, I could go through a whole number of organizations that send people to places that really horrible things occur. And they're there because that's the way you start to heal the world before the world is even hurt. Which, of course, was the work of the International Voluntary Service. IVS stopped doing its work. I think you described it back when we previously interviewed. You described it as kind of the equivalent of the Peace Corps, kind of win hearts and minds by putting Americans in the midst of a country. Do you know when it stopped, why it stopped? Why didn't the IVS continue on? Because we still need that kind of seeding of international understanding and growing the sense of us. IVS started before the Peace Corps. It was started by the traditional peace churches, the Quakers, the Brethren, the Mennonites. And it had the organization very similar to what the Peace Corps became. It was to send individuals with skills of some type, whether it was animal husbandry or a skill in teaching, something of that nature, to places that needed a person-to-person not a huge dam being built, not roads being paved, not any of that, but just a person in the school, a person in the field. The Peace Corps actually studied IVS before they set up. So IVS is the progenitor, if you will. IVS went from beginning of the Peace Church to a very secular organization. There wasn't really a need for IVS in a number of countries because the Peace Corps took our role and the government had total control of the Peace Corps volunteers. We, at the end, were basically in conflict zones because Peace Corps doesn't get sent there. So Cambodia, until that was untenable, Vietnam, Laos, Algeria, Papua New Guinea, uh, things of that nature. We were funded not by churches at the end. We were funded basically by occasionally a foundation and by the U.S. government, USAID. And it just basically the funding decided to go to other organizations and IBS stopped. Now that doesn't stop the reunions because everyone has that, you know, yeah, yeah. We, they, they got together last September, I think in Birmingham and then went to see all of the civil rights, historical sites and things of that nature. And they're thinking about having another one in Colorado. We're all old now. I mean, the last volunteers were a couple decades ago. 
I don't think they quite got to the turn of the century, to 2000, but it was a long run. One of the things that I appreciated from Final Reflections, tidbits that were not included in my previous interview with you, was reflections on some of the f- neighbors that you visited. You had neighbors right there, but you also visited people from the Kaudai religious sect, the Montagnards, a religious sect. And the Kaudai folks, the description that you gave me in the book made me think rather of the Baha'i, how they had taken from different senses of religions and somehow made a a better view of the world. And I just think we're richer for having these people who have these spiritual insights and connections. Can you share anything about Kaudai folks and the Montagnards to enrich our listeners for spirit in action? Penin is in a little pocket of Cambodia. So from the city that I lived in, Cambodia was on the north, the south, as well as the west. And it hadn't been well settled by the 20s or 30s because agriculturally it was poor. So uh, Vietnamese civil servants who also spoke French had the idea of combining the best of everything together. So there's parts of Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism and Christianity and One of their saints is one of their favorite authors, apparently, which is Victor Hugo. And they had a number of followers. They moved to this otherwise relatively poor province and set up a very strong religion that, you know, the people helped each other. There was that spirit of uh, community. The town of Tainin was surrounded by a perimeter that was guarded and we were mortared at night and all of these sort of things. The main holy see, if you will, the Kaudai, Holy See, had no guards, they had no barbed wire, they had no weapons. And the day I could go out there and I could sit at the edge of the temple and hear this incredibly wild Eastern uh, music and then walk around in a garden with flowers and such. They were vegetarians. The Catholics that were also in the province weren't. So, you know, the banquet that they gave for me in one group would be entirely different than the other group. The neighbors I had there, I had a two rooms in a very long sort of blockhouse where uh, each of the apartments was a one-floor, two-room sort of thing. And a family, uh, my apartment split the family. So the kids would come over and we'd sing and we'd talk and, you know, I'd buy them popsicles or something like that. When I was sick with malaria, and it was the dry season, there weren't supposed to be mosquitoes have been taking the anti-malarias for months and months and months. So I stopped taking them for a while. I was delirious. I could barely get out of bed to take the the board off the the lock. I certainly couldn't have gone anywhere. And the neighbors brought over a traditional soup for this sort of situation, which was bananas. That's the sugar and nookmam, and that's the salt. And that was the rehydration that I needed until I was well enough that they could pack me into a little cart behind a motorcycle and go off to a real doctor. I think I would have died without that. So when 75 came and there was no opportunity for them to get out or me to go back, I lost contact with them for a long time. And when I finally made contact, it was an amazing thing. So I know the people who have come here. I know the people who have stayed there. Uh, They are politically much different than me. They're politically much different than the North Vietnamese doctors at Bach Mai Hospital that the Mayo Clinic sponsored my research with. Both of those groups hated each other, but both of those groups are my friends. 
and both of them have done things for me, and hopefully I've done some things for them which have been helpful. The other group that you had contact with that has a religious space is the Montagnards. People who don't speak French might not realize that, that means the mountain people, right? Montagnards. Yeah. And like me, you are a non-drinker of alcohol, or at least you have been. And uh, when you visited them, their rice mash wine evidently was part of that adventure. I'm not so interested in that part of it as I am in the religious group that was sitting there in Vietnam at the time you were there. What different flavor did they bring to the whole mix? The Montagnards have always been looked down upon by the Vietnamese because they're the savages. They're the, I mean, the Vietnamese word basically would be equivalent to our N-word at one time during the civil rights movement. So they had always favored the French because the French would protect them against the Vietnamese. And then they favored the Americans because the Green Berets would protect them against the Vietnamese. So one of the volunteers who was killed when I was there in Vietnam in 71 worked among the Montagnards. He was with Vietnamese Christian service. And because he was working with these people, a sapper came in and they shot him while his wife of two weeks, an IBS volunteer, a, a Philippine woman in agriculture and a, a nurse were there. I'm not sure that's a, that's a religion. That's the, in a war zone, oftentimes everyone hates everyone else. I've been shot out by Americans when they didn't know I was eating in the back of a restaurant outside of town. Are American soldiers my enemy? No, it's, they hated the people that I associated with. Now, the religious part of that was, in fact, the rice wine. I'm not a teetotaler. I have beer, but, you know, I'll split a bottle with my wife now. And back then, I had beer that was so weak in Vietnam that the reason we bought it is that it was always safe water. <laughs> so it's a longhouse, huge, big, peaked thatch roof and pillars that lifted up off the uh, the floor off the ground and you can see through the floorboards and there's pigs that are rooting underneath this and you know we would come up and tracy atwood who had been there forever and worked among the mountain yards as an agriculturalist they would have this big pot huge big pot maybe three feet tall and three feet wide and this rice mash which is fermented and they put a long straw into it and then it would be like Native Americans in a, a peace ceremony where they pass a pipe around. They would pass this straw around to each person by the jar. And someone with a, a can of really uncertain providence, maybe an old Campbell soup can that was rusty on the edge, was filled with water. And they would pour that in the top. And you'd have to drink until the water level dropped. And then you could pass it to the next straw. So the straw keeps going around. It's in the bottom. You're getting this horrible liquid. And being very low tolerance, it was, <laughs> I was the first to fall backwards. And Tracy Atwood being, a, being you know, they, they all laughed and things like that. And it was, it was both an honor to be included in the ceremony in the same way as a Native American offering you a peace pipe with sacred tobacco. And it was also an honor that they could laugh at me that I was obviously not a part of this group. <laughs> 
those stories are so rich, Jeffrey, and I think they're part of what makes us see us in the bigger circles. Because, you know, I can imagine sitting there, I can imagine, what do you do when you've got someone who welcomes you into their home? How do you treat that differently? There's actually one more part to that story that I should say, and I'd put in the book, is when I was in high school, I wondered about going to Vietnam even back then, long before college. And I'd written to uh, the special forces because I knew they had ethnographic literature. And they sent me back one of the uh, books on the Montagnards. And it went through what an anthropologist would go through. What's the religion? What do they eat? How do they raise food? You know, what are the marriage customs, et cetera? The last part was always the paramilitary ability. Was this tribe more likely to be easily trained in the use of small arms and mortars? Would they run away? Would they have unit cohesion and all of this sort of thing? And that was different than what IBS was. We weren't interested in how they could fight for us. We were interested in how we could make their lives better in some way. And that was maybe the first of my, you know, why would we go over there with the idea of how we could use their culture for our purposes? Yeah. So often we see other people as tools instead of as neighbors. And to convert them into neighbors, as you did by living amongst them, I think makes all the difference for any of us. When you came back after spending the time with the IVS in Vietnam, you became part of a speaking tour. You, were, Some people set you up, and I would really love to hear something about what enabled you to do it, what motivated you to do it, and what you actually did. How did that speaking tour come around? Again, you weren't sitting there filthy rich that you can just uh, fund anything you want. I think you lived awfully simply during those times too. How did it happen and what was it about? I'd said that my first meeting with the Quakers was in Quang Ai. So when I came back to St. Paul, I looked up the Quakers. One of my professors, Ed Strait was a Quaker, never spoke about it in class, but I think once a week he was out there on Grand Avenue, McAllister College, with a sign that was very Quakerly, you know, it was peace or something like that. So I looked him up, he introduced me to meeting, and then I told him where I had been, and I spoke to the Quaker meeting. So others in that meeting, John Martinson had been the head of the local office of the American Friends Service Committee, the FSC, said, we need you to take that around the rest of the state. And people came together. So one of the people in uh, the meeting loaned me their Volkswagen Beetle to drive around. Another family gave me a room in Minneapolis to live in in between the trips. The FSC was respected, so people in small towns would offer to put me up to introduce me to people. And it put them, their integrity on the line, too. One of my good friends is a physician at the Mayo Clinic. He was a junior faculty and never had met me, booked a, you know, an auditorium in the library and set me up to speak about the Vietnam War without knowing what I would say. That's an incredible amount of trust to do that. Everyone did that. What I brought was different in two ways. I had been there. My father was killed in the military. I'm a gold star child. You know, when my, when my brother and I were there, we have a, a blue star that you put in the window. And that means someone in your family is in a combat zone. You know, someone's in danger. 
And if they die, you put up a gold scar. So I could speak in VFWs because I had that sort of background. You just don't turn away a person with that background. And I could speak in others because I'd been there as a pacifist. What I brought was different. Uh, Narmak had had a very well-researched things on what the weapons were that were being used in Vietnam. And a lot of them were very new and in military terms, innovative. When I would show them in a VFW place, people would say, oh, I wish I'd had that in World War II. I wish I'd had that in Korea. I wish I'd... And people who had never seen combat, you know, they would be not frightened. They, they would be disgusted that, you know, death occurred in such a horrible sort of way, but it wouldn't give them a sense of who was dying. So I basically took that out. And what I showed them was pictures of village life. You know, I showed them pictures of uh, a woman washing her child in the Mekong. I showed them pictures of kids playing with an old soccer ball. I showed them pictures of what a wedding was like, because the war was there in Tainan, but there was also times that were not at war. And that made people realize that this is not suffering of people who are not like us. This is suffering of people who are like us. So when you make the decision whether or not you're protecting this group or you're attacking that group, you've got to make it with a sense that real people like you are being hurt. What do you want to do? And that was different. It's also how I met my wife years later, is that she wanted to give a, a speech in her college area and knew that I had these pictures, which were not all about weapons. They were about people. And sight unseen, she borrowed my slides. And I realized that years later, we had the same thoughts about people. You don't get them to be against war by making war horrible. You get them to be against this particular war with a rational ambience, but also having realized that those are real people that are involved. Well, let's cover one more thing, Jeffrey, and that is uh, you are moving kind of inexorably towards your death because of the prostate cancer that you have, that it apparently is there's no solution to it. Most diseases, they say, well, you've got a 10% or a 50% or a 5% chance of survival. Do they give you a number about your chances of survival from this, of not dying from the prostate? No, there's the last trial I was in, which was a radioisotope that binds to the cancer. It's loaded down, but I'm not in the 30% who had, an, uh, had a really good response to it. The difficulty of being a physician is also a benefit of being a physician is when I go into the appointments, I read all the articles that the physicians who are caring for me have read. Uh, the difference is they have experience treating patients, and I just have New England Journal articles. The New England Journal article said, uh, they'll use technical terms, but this particular type of cancer has no cure. This looks like it will extend life and the quality of life a little bit longer. So that's sort of where I am. Prostate cancer is like skin cancer, which is, okay, which one do you have? Do you have melanoma? That's a skin cancer much more serious than the basal cell. I had a very high grade, very rapid metastatic cancer, and they've kept me alive for two and a half years, and it'll probably keep me alive for another year or two. It's given me the chance to look at life. But one more digression. In my first year of medical school, I went to Mayo Medical School, real small, very, uh, they, they were focused on the humanity as well as the technical aspects. So one of our first exercises was to write our own death certificate. 
and it forced you to think about life. Well, if I died in my sleep of a stroke or a heart attack, that's easy for me. I'm gone. I don't even know that I'm gone before I'm gone. But what about my wife? What about my son? What about all the friends? What about putting things together at the end? Well, if I have time, well, I know I'm dying. I can think about death. I can try to answer questions that are unanswerable. But I have time to talk to all these people. I have time to make sort of peace with it's going to happen because it's going to happen to all of us. I just know it's going to happen to me probably within the next year or two and probably in the way that this disease progresses. I don't see that as something bad. I see it as unfortunate that it occurs at this age. I'd rather be as old as my great-grandfather, who was 101 when he baptized me and had seen slavery. He was an abolitionist who had fought in the Civil War, which gives you an idea about how recent that is, 1848. So when he's born, 1948 is when I'm born. But it gives me time to look. That's not a bad thing. And folks, the memoir by Jeffrey Gates called Final Reflections is a really good chance to look at a life, a life well-lived, a life it, with not without error. I mean, you certainly have those just like we all do. But to look at the fruits of a life, your own life, can only make this world a better place, I believe. And Jeffrey Gates has inspired us to do that, inspired me to do it more because of his book. Now, again, you can't just go to Amazon and buy the book. If you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org, I'll channel you to Jeffrey and he can get out a copy or two or maybe have to have some printed if there's a stampede of people who need to read this. Again, I remind you, you can also listen to my interview with him about seven years ago. I'll have that linked from this program as well. But all in all, what I want to say, Jeffrey, is I don't want you to live one or two more years. I would like to go another 10 or 20 years with you as my friend so that we can keep talking about the important things of life. You're an inspiration to me, and I thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. And I appreciate the thought, and I appreciate the invitation. And folks, again, all those links on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our